If you will please open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Which is after Ezra, before Esther. Most theologians agree that Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book. And it's a little confusing. Our Bibles are not arranged chronologically. Our Bibles are not arranged completely chronologically. Nehemiah contains actually the last history of the Old Testament recorded in the Bible happens in Nehemiah. And then 400 years later, John the Baptist arrives on, on the scene. And so there's 400 years of uh, prophetic silence from God. Not that God wasn't uh, still speaking to people in their hearts, but nothing inscripturated between Nehemiah and the beginning of the New Testament. So even though Malachi is your last book of the Old Testament, it isn't technically, chronologically, the last information recorded for us. We're going to use Nehemiah here, though, as kind of wrapping up our Old Testament tour. And it was a tour. We, we couldn't go in-depth. It's not an exhaustive tour, and honestly, the Bible's inexhaustible. So we couldn't do an exhaustive tour. It reveals an infinite God, so you, you can't dig all the way to the bottom. But I think by now we've seen the, the major themes. You're getting to understand the flow of redemptive history, God's grand story, who God is. He's much greater than we can conjure up in our own imaginations. We're much more sinful than we ever thought we were, and Jesus is way more impressive of a savior than we ever thought because of all that. We have come to realize that the Bible primarily is not a book about man, it's a book about God and how man ought to relate to this God. When we get to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is often taught as a book on leadership and all the focus is on Nehemiah and how tenacious he was at getting this wall built and what a great leader he was. And, and certainly there are leadership principles to draw from the book of Nehemiah. It's a favorite Bible study for, for men and women, but men especially. I always kind of nervously hold my breath when a Nehemiah Bible study is happening because people come out of the study like, I need this grand project now from the Lord. <laughs> and so you've got everyone in the study wanting the church to get on board with their big project. And that would be taking a very man-centered approach to the book. The hero of the book is not Nehemiah, it's God. We have seen that in every book of the Bible. The hero is God. God sovereignly placed Nehemiah into a position of influence there's no way Nehemiah is getting himself into the position that he was in from any human perspective. He was the cup bearer for Artaxerxes. Remember the first emperor of Persia, Cyrus? God 
sovereignly worked in the heart of Cyrus to release the captives back to Israel completely on God's schedule and timetable. Seventy years after the captivity started, Cyrus makes this decree that the exiles return to the land. The first wave of exiles went under Zerubbabel, the second wave under Ezra. Now we're on the third wave, Nehemiah. Who's Nehemiah? Nehemiah is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. This important position. Think of him as Joseph and Pharaoh, the the right-hand man. Like Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I'm reading this and I was studying, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Again? Like there's no good Persians to be the right-hand man for the Persian emperor. How is it that... These lowly Jewish men end up in these incredibly important positions. God, right? Doesn't that give you great comfort as our world seems to be in out-of-control turmoil? God's in control, and he'll get just the right man or woman in just the right place at just the right time. Whether believer or unbeliever. Whether believer or unbeliever. And so... At the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we see this man, Nehemiah, this cupbearer for Artaxerxes, and his heart is burdened for his homeland. And he is depressed. And you're not supposed to be depressed in the presence of the king. It's breaking of royal protocol. You better put a smile on that face. But... He can't hide it any longer, and the king asks him why the long face. And he says, oh, king, may you live forever. I don't mean to insult you, but my heart is broken because the land of my fathers lays in ruins. And the king providentially, sovereign God, moves in the king's heart to say, you should go. What do you need? How much time? What kind of money? What kind of resources? Get out the royal pen. God provided Nehemiah everything he needed to go and and rebuild the walls of his city. And we're assuming not just the walls, but probably some of the more important administrative buildings. Rebuild the city. This is crazy, folks. Why Why would an emperor allow his enemies to rebuild their cities? God, God is in this. We know God is in this. And remember, God had the original walls built under Solomon, and he let them come down. And he's going to let Nehemiah build these walls, and guess what? In AD 70, they're coming down. And they're still down to this day, except for one little piece that people stick their prayer requests in the wall. It's a, a glorious place. Maybe someday I'll get to visit, and I know many of you have. The book's not about building walls. Otherwise, if we read our Bible that way, then we should all go out and go build walls right now, right? That's, that's, that's what the Bible must be telling us. But that's not what the story of Nehemiah is telling us to do. As we've preached through this meta-narrative of God, the meta-narrative being a fancy term for the story that explains all other stories, We, Nathan and I, have been attempting to also demonstrate the proper way to handle and interpret God's word and apply it. So we're preaching and teaching simultaneously. There's a way that we do theology that we were taught in seminary and called to teach to you. 
how to handle God's word. It starts with having a proper, what we call hermeneutic, proper um, method of interpreting the actual words of the Bible using normal rules of grammar, the context of the passage, and the history in which the passage is um, written. We call it the grammatical, historical, literal approach. We don't make up mystical, allegorical meanings to what we read in the Bible. If we do that, then we can make the Bible say anything. And if it can say anything, then it says nothing. If it can say anything, then it, then it means nothing. If you can make it mean anything you want it to mean, it means nothing. It has to mean what God meant it to mean, to be the Word of God. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. If you don't have the meaning, you don't have the Scripture. And so, on the one hand, we humbly say, who am I to say this is exactly what it means? But on the other hand, God has told us, I will give you the means to be able to interpret my Word. Theme verse 201 talks about rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. If there's a right way to handle it, what does that mean? There must also be a wrong way to handle it. So start with the proper hermeneutic, and then we move to what's called biblical theology. So isn't all theology biblical? Well, it should be. <laughs> but theology is any thought about God. And sadly, most people think about God in unbiblical ways. Even Christians do. We're all guilty of this. So biblical theology, what that really means is looking at the whole scope of the Bible now to start developing your thoughts about God. The whole scope of the Bible. That's why it's important that we do this meta-narrative thing and look at the whole scope of the Bible. From there, you get, you get a real firm understanding of who God is, what his plans are, what he's like, what he's not like. And you're ready to move on to what we call systematic theology. Systematic theology is taking each topic one by one and looking exhaustively what the Bible has to say on that topic. And then when you take all those things together, then and only then are you ready to do what's called practical theology. How then shall we live according to God? Well, you've done all the homework. And when you go through those steps, you'll, you'll figure out quickly in Nehemiah that he's probably not calling you to build a wall. So if some guy came to my office this week and said, God told me to build a wall around the church, you know, I'd listen, but it kind of kills your evangelism and discipleship, right? If you're not letting anyone in. So... That doesn't mean we're not being literal. This is Old Testament narrative. It's not telling us prescriptively this is what everybody's supposed to do. But there, there's theology we can glean from the story of Nehemiah. And just briefly this morning, I, I want to show you three quick examples of theology that can be gleaned from Nehemiah. And we're going to do this to help increase our spiritual maturity. Okay, three questions from Nehemiah to increase our spiritual maturity. Question number one, how do you know when God has put something on your heart? That's like the $64,000 question in Christianity. This is what divides entire denominations and movements. And yet these words appear in Scripture. 
Nehemiah 2.11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. ESV, God put into my heart. Other translations, God put on my heart. It's where we get this saying. Raise your hand if you've ever said, God laid it on my heart or God put it on my heart. Come on. I see that hand, right? And you're like, well, what does that really mean? And what if that's my flesh speaking? Or what if that's just my own human desires speaking? Or How do you know God really put that on your heart? And when you say that, does that automatically mean that everyone has to agree with you? Be careful. You're using God's authority in a way that you shouldn't. My youngest son yesterday asked me or told me, Dad, go tell Adam to do such and such. <laughs> Dad put it on my heart to tell you to get off the computer so I could, right? You know, Dad did nothing of the sort. And we laugh at that in a human level, but don't we do that to God sometimes when we go around telling everyone, well, God told me this or God put it on my heart, and suddenly everyone has to drop what they're doing as if you heard a prophetic word from God that is now equal with Scripture. And yet, there's the line. And if we use a a correct hermeneutic, it means what it means. It means exactly what it means. God placed something, an impression on Nehemiah's heart. We don't see anywhere in the text God verbally saying, Nehemiah, go build this wall. We don't see him handing Nehemiah personal uh, instructions of what the wall is to look like. And yet there's no doubt in my mind or yours that God wanted Nehemiah to build this wall. And so how do we know? Because God does sometimes work that way. So, we go from our hermeneutic to our biblical theology. Where else in the Bible do we see God placing things on people's heart? And, and we look through the scriptures. We see God speaking directly to the prophets. We see him telling them to write things down. We see God showing up face-to-face with Moses. We see the angel of the Lord appearing to people and giving them instructions. We see Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, giving his disciples and all of us direct instructions. But the most prolific way God speaks to us and put things on our heart is through his Word. So Nathan and I got together this week, and I, I said, what are some principles you think for knowing if you're hearing the voice of God or if it's just your your own ideas. And I made a list and he made a list and the list looked pretty much the same. That's a good thing. You know, that gives you either confidence that we both know what we're talking about or we're both completely lost. Um, you be the judge. I'm sure if you made a list, it would look a lot like ours. I, I, I hope it would. So here's some bullet points for you. Bullet point number one, first and foremost, an impression on your heart may or may not be from God. You've got to get that through. No matter how strongly you feel about something, you've got to hold it loosely in your hands. It may not be from God. It may just be your own idea. Maybe your flesh talking. Maybe a great idea, but not for now. Maybe, maybe for another day. So don't treat it as prophetic and certainly don't expect others around you to treat it prophetic. Don't, don't presume upon God in such a way that now you have complete control over everyone around you. Well, God told me we had to do this. 
I would think if it involved more than just you, God would tell other people as well. You would be able to build a coalition. Secondly, and just as important, are you being faithful in your other spiritual disciplines? Nehemiah was a godly man. He was, he was a God-fearing man. He studied the scriptures. He was faithful in the position God put him in. In fact, it was really going to be a great sacrifice to him to go build this wall. He had a great position. It made way more sense to stay home and be the cupbearer. And so at great personal expense, he's going to go on this long trek and the hard work of rebuilding a wall. Are you reading your Bible? Are you in prayer? Are you serving the Lord? Are you being obedient to the word of God? Don't expect God to speak to you miraculously by putting something on your heart when you're not listening to what he's already said in his word. Some folks walk around and they don't read their Bible and they're kind of, well, God just speaks to me all day long. Maybe, maybe not. But if you read your Bible, he'll speak to you all day long. Third, God will never put something on your heart that is contrary to his word. That's very important. God will never put something on your heart that is contrary to his word. God will not contradict himself. I hear this a lot in counseling when people are frustrated, exasperated. Well, God put it on my heart that we need to perhaps seek a divorce. I know you're hurting. I know things are difficult and things look hopeless, but God wouldn't tell you that. Unless there were extenuating circumstances that God has laid out in his word, infidelity, or someone's abandoned the faith. But even in those two cases, there's good biblical warrant for staying in the marriage, if you can, and being that godly influence, and perhaps through your influence, win that person back to Christ. But got to be careful when people come in and say, God put this on my heart, and you're like, whoa, because that's completely opposite of what I read in the Bible. That can't be God putting that on your heart. Next bullet, does it glorify God or does it exalt you? That's a hard question to answer because when you're passionate about something, you can convince yourself it's all for God. This is totally for God. It's not about me. You need other people in your life that can speak truth into your life and say, I'm not so sure. This one looks like it's all about you. For Nehemiah, it was all about God's glory and honor. There was nothing for him to gain by a wall being built. He already had a position of great honor. It's not like he was a nobody who's like, hey, if I rebuild the wall, maybe they'll put my name on it. <laughs> no, this was about God's glory and honor, and he was tired of the name of God being a reproach to the other nations. They're mocking us. Our temple isn't as grand as Solomon's temple, and it's not even protected. And he wanted to go back for the glory of God and get this wall built. Next, is it biblically wise? Uh, some other questions. Does it accomplish kingdom goals? Do otherwise mature Christians support you? Is God providing the resources? Look at Bible, kingdom, 
mature Christians, is God providing the resources? Is God in this thing? That helps me to know it's from God and not from me. Certainly there may be obstacles, and one or two obstacles doesn't mean that something's not from God. Nehemiah had obstacles, both from outside Israel and inside. There were people inside who were making it difficult for the wall to be built. The the rich people were charging the workers so much in taxes that they had to put themselves in slavery. And Nehemiah had to rebuke them for that. But you know, when you, when you go to talk to others about something God's put on your heart and you're just not getting anyone else to see what you see, that may be an indicator that this isn't from God. Are you willing to make great personal sacrifices to accomplish the task? It's easy to say God put something on my heart when it cost everyone else their time, money, and resources. But Nehemiah put up his own money and his own time and his own reputation and his own sweat equity. I feel, uh, there's that word feel, huh? I strongly believe that God put on the heart of J.P. Lake to organize the Awake California prayer gathering August 27th at Rabobank Arena. Because I go through this list and I'm like, check, check, check. Yes, all the way down, including the putting up of one's own money and reputation. He hasn't asked for a dime from anyone else. He's putting on the event, renting out Rabobank at his own personal expense. He's taken time off work to organize this event. Does it mean it's from God? No, but... More and more evidence starts to pile up that, yeah, this looks like a movement of God. I want to be there. If God's in it, I want to, I want to, be, I want to be there. Finally, I just want to remind you, um, there are relatively few examples in the Bible of God giving direct instructions to an individual. Yes, we have the record of many examples of that, but you have to remember, this is a book that records all of human history. So these few examples are condensed into the book, and it may make us believe this is going on all the time, this is just the normal way things work, but you know, how old is Nehemiah at this point? These kinds of things don't happen very often in one's life. Most of our faith is lived out in what seems to be the mundane daily decisions of life, but those decisions are important, brothers and sisters. They, they add up. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so most of the things in life, we kind of run them through the grid of, look, is it sinful? Then don't do it. Or if I don't do it, is it a sin? Then you better do it. After that, lots of biblical wisdom, stepping forward in faith, stay humble, and be ready for God to change your plans. <laughs> right? <laughs> Amen. Second question, when should we build walls? When should we build walls? Boy, is that relevant, right? I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole, right? We're not going political here, but the world is saying that um, are walls good or bad? And it's not a binary decision, folks. It's not a yes-no. Some walls are good, some walls are bad. 
You can build good walls for the wrong reasons. That's not good. Sometimes walls are good for a season and then they need to come down. The question isn't, are walls good or bad? Because God impressed on Nehemiah's heart to build the wall. So that was good. God wanted that wall there. But guess what? In AD 70, it's coming down. The walls are intended to keep out invaders and keep doctrine pure in Israel. And when the doctrine inside the walls became corrupt, then the walls needed to come down. Right now, we're living in a world that really actually wants to tear down all kinds of walls, especially figurative walls, doctrinal walls. Anywhere God has put up a wall doctrinally, the world's trying to tear it down. Right? Here's a wall for marriage. Everything on this side is, is, a, is a Christian marriage. Everything on this side is not. The world wants to tear down that wall. And then... Rebuild the wall in a completely different place. So it's not that the world's tearing down walls because they think walls are bad, because they're going to turn right around and rebuild the walls somewhere else. So don't let people get away with telling you that all walls are bad. In fact, that statement is a wall, right? It's a truth. All truth statements are walls. Everything on this side of the wall is truth, everything on this side of the wall is false. So don't let people get away with this whole truth is relative. That, that's a wall right there. They just made an absolute statement about something. So we do need walls. The questions are, when do we need the walls and where should they be put? And we go through our grid again. We interpret the Bible. We go through biblical theology, see where God has built walls, do systematic theology, and then finally the practical theology. Now we're ready to build the wall or tear one down or maybe make a gate in a wall. So here's a few more bullet points for you. Number one, walls protect what is precious, therefore God should get to determine what is precious. That's how you know when to build a wall. I think we build walls around stuff that doesn't matter so much. And if we're going to build walls, make sure it's important to God. You can't build walls around everything. We do that sometimes as parents. I'll just, I'll just build this wall around my kids and no evil will ever touch them. No, no sin, no false doctrine. And the walls get thicker and higher and higher. And mom, dad, guess what? Junior's already got sin in his heart. The, the fox is in the hen house already. And that wall may just be keeping the fox in. And so you have the other parents who are like, amen to that. That's why I just throw my kids to the world so they can be inoculated. Whoa, hey, that's, not, that's not a good strategy either. It takes discernment. You see, spiritual maturity always takes more discernment. It's, these questions aren't the yes-no kind. Some walls should have a gate so that you can control the flow of people and information. Okay, I'm going to get about as, as political as you're going to see me get. If this wall they're talking about building on the border is truly so we can slow down the flow of people across the border, that sounds wise to me. Makes sense. But just because people say that's the plan doesn't mean that's actually going to be 
the plan. We have walls around the church. We have a security team out there. I don't want a chain link fence and razor wire. Some people might. I would disagree with you, but we can talk humbly and, and, and talk about the best way to protect our church physically. We've got the lambs list computer, so we make sure parents pick up their kids and not somebody else. We background check our workers, children's ministry workers. Those are all walls. Some parents feel very comfortable dropping off their baby in the nursery. Others, you know, it's like maybe when he's two, maybe when he's five, maybe when they're just not, not ever going to be comfortable. I'm not going to force that on somebody, you know. So we all have different understanding of where the walls should be, how thick they should be, and how tall they should be. What's more important to God is doctrine. Doctrine's more important to God than our physical safety. Our spiritual safety is more important to God. The Bible has way more to say about doctrinal walls. So doctrinal walls are very important. And there's this idea out there that the best way to unify the church is just to get rid of all the doctrinal walls. That is foolish. That is foolish. The Bible, again and again and again, warns us against false teaching and sound doctrine. And so we need doctrinal walls. Some of those walls have to be thick and immovable. Other doctrinal walls we can't be so dogmatic about because there's good and godly arguments from the Bible that, that, that maybe this doctrine is, is the right doctrine. So we major on the majors here and try to minor on the minors and in all things charity, all things humility. Doctrinal walls can have gates. We can invite people into the church who have different ideas than us. Otherwise, if you only let people into the church who believed exactly to the letter what I believe, there'd be one of us here. (laughs) Church of one. And yet there's enough doctrines that are clearly laid out in the Bible that we could put together a a doctrinal statement and, and... Use that as protection for our church and say, if you want to be a member of the church, these are the doctrines that you need to affirm. And finally, I'll remind you again, you can build all the walls you want, but remember that sin resides in your heart. Walls can be a false sense of security, so you need to be careful there. Finally, and I've already covered this, so I don't really need to say much on it, but after the walls were finished being built, they built this huge platform, and Ezra the scribe got up on the platform, and he opened the book of the law, and he read the book out loud, and then he explained it. He gave the sense, it says. See, I underlined, they gave the sense. And so how do you give the sense of the scriptures? And that's what I've explained. They used the proper hermeneutic. They did their biblical theology, their systematic theology, and then their practical theology. And this has been handed down through the church for generation after generation after generation. This is the way you handle the scriptures. 
In Ezra 7, 6, it says that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses. Do you understand that handling the word of God is a skill? Teaching's a gift. Preaching's a gift. Some people are exceptionally gifted preachers and teachers. But handling the word of God is a skill that can be learned by everybody and should be learned by everybody. If you're a Christian, if you're a person of the book, you need to learn how to skillfully handle the word of God, just like you were taught all kinds of skills growing up. How to walk, how to read, how to write, how to speak, grammatically correct. All these things are skills. Yes, some people are more skilled in them than others, but you can learn and you should constantly be learning how to handle the word of God skillfully because Jesus has called us to the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. If you're going to be a disciple maker, you need to know how to handle the scriptures skillfully. Nathan and I have discovered together that, yes, teaching and demonstrating how to handle the scriptures is great, but it's not enough. And so we're offering a class in the fall on how to skillfully handle the scriptures. There will be more on that later, but all of our elders are signed up, which is exciting. They know how to handle the scriptures, and they understand we can get more skilled at this together, and that's a good thing. I wanted to leave with this, and then I'll call Light up. They're going to lead us in the doxology. I was thinking about Nehemiah and how he was kind of the number two in Persia. Like that that position of authority, the the emperor's right-hand man who listens to Nehemiah and takes counsel from, from him. And Nehemiah is influencing the king to benefit the people of God. And and we said, boy, that was Joseph's life too, and Daniel's life, and even Esther's life. And we could make a huge list, and you're like, wow. I was thinking, isn't that Jesus Christ? Where is Jesus Christ right now? Seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession For all the saints. But only if you know him. Only if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. All these examples point us to Christ. Through faith in Christ, you have God's ear. You have someone interceding for you. And when he calls you on that day to stand before his throne, Jesus Christ will be there through faith to say, Daddy, this one's in. He's in the family. I I died for this one. And he received that gift. If you haven't received that gift yet, today's the day, and as light comes up and sings the doxology, if you'd like to come up and pray to receive Christ, today is the day of salvation. Please come up, my brothers and sisters.